Welcome to your Active Stack Brief podcast. My name is Luca Bertuzzi, your technology editor. This week, we take a closer look at what the digital sovereignty debate means for the cloud market. For an overview on all things technology in the EU, sign up to our free newsletter or visit the website youractive.com. This is your Active Stack Brief podcast. Today, I'm joined by Joe Bagley, Chief Technology Officer and Vice President for EMEA at VMware. Hi, Joe. Hi, how are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you for asking. Um, so, Joe, uh, VMware is obviously uh, a leading player in the cloud market and it's an American company. Um, what is your view from across the pond about the debate that we have here in Europe, especially concerning digital sovereignty? <laughs> so we're an American company, but my view is not from across the pond because I'm English, um, I'm European and uh, I lead the Europe, Middle East and Africa part of our business. So my view has always been very much from this side of the pond, uh, but obviously representing an American company. I think when you think about digital sovereignty, it's important to get the definition right. A lot of people have to understand, one, why they're looking for sovereignty. So, you know, people are looking for sovereignty because maybe they don't want certain legal agencies looking at their data, and if they do, they want to know that it's happened. Other people have legislation requiring them to put data in particular places. And so, realistically, a lot of people are looking at um, clouds and hyperscalers that are from outside Europe not being valid for creating a sovereign cloud for operating within Europe because, you know, for whichever reason, that could be from anywhere in the world, not, you know, just from America. And so our discussion is that we're not a cloud provider. VMware isn't a cloud provider. We're an American software company that provides software to cloud providers. And in fact, we provide the software that's used to operate many sovereign clouds right here in Europe across pretty much every country in Europe. In fact, over 2,000 general clouds, and, and several of those are, as we define them, sovereign clouds at the moment. We have our own sovereign cloud program. So, you know, if you're looking for a, you know, a French cloud running in France, operated by French people in French jurisdiction, in French data centers, with everything being French and taxes paid in France, then that's exactly what we help companies like OVH, for example, to build. Obviously, as you said, you you occupy a rather unique space in the cloud market mm -hmm. as you are this uh, control layer, if I, if I can define it, uh, in terms of uh, virtualizing uh, the network and, and providing, integrating the different cloud mm -hmm. strands. Um, so I, I just wanted to understand better what you mean with a sovereign cloud then, um, since since you are uh, saying the, the, this term really depends on, on, on to whom you ask. So what is in your mind a sovereign cloud? So a sovereign cloud could be defined by what region of sovereignty you're looking at. So sovereignty could be a particular nation. It could be a particular economic area. It could be an area of juris legal jurisdiction. It could be an area of, say, financial regulation. So what means sovereignty to different people in different businesses, different organizations, different sectors is, is very varied. But there's generic terms that people tend to come to when it comes to sovereignty. And when we're talking about sovereignty, we're talking about the ability to prove that data operations and the entire cloud itself, there are guardrails around that, who's operating it, where they're operating and how they're operating it that are well and strongly enforced. And I think that's really the importance here. There's no blurry lines. And quite often you'll see people trying to claim they're operating some form of sovereign cloud, but in fact they're operating 
a you know a, a foreign cloud with a with a, a local badge on it, which is as much you know, try to make it local as possible. But there might be you know some operations or some technical pieces that are being done from outside that state, which is where people tend to cause some problems. We tend to call, put them more in the category of something like a trusted cloud or something like that. It's, it's not quite sovereign. When we're talking to legal entities, when I'm talking to legislators, policymakers, when they're talking about sovereign cloud, they're talking about essentially guardrails and protection around data, around data location, around who's got access to data. It all tends to be around data, where it is and who can do stuff with it. Yeah. And um, for example, at your active this week, we reported about this uh, controversial cloud scheme called uh, EUCS for cloud services. Mm -hmm. And a lot of uh, American hyperscaler, they see it as uh, protectionist move from from uh, Europe to sort of close uh, important parts of the market to them. Uh, and, and there you can really see three elements of what can be considered sovereignty, which one is, you know, who controls the company if the company is, you know, uh, European or American. Uh, the other one is uh, if foreign jurisdictions can access the data mm -hmm. and uh, the third one is where the data is located. So, you know, in your view, how, how can uh, cloud companies truly combine these three dimensions? And which one can actually make more sense for, for in terms of a sovereign cloud? So as I said, there's several European organizations and European cloud providers across Europe that can meet all three of those today, being run by a European organization based in a European country and, you know, under European jurisdiction. So, you know, that that happens and, and does exist. I think it's a valid one that you cloud organizations from outside of Europe should you aren't going to be able to meet some of those requirements. They'll maybe be able to meet lower requirements and get lower up that that scale of sovereignty. Um, but yeah, they're, they're not going to be able to meet it entirely because of, you know, I think the, the point that most people bring up is the legal one, for example. So, you know, it's, it's the fact that a law enforcement agency would be able to access and look at your data without your without you being told about it is the great scare of most organizations. And that's not just commercial organizations, it's also nation states as well. Nation states are realizing the value of data and they're realizing the value of data being within their borders. And so, you know, that's not stopping organizations today engaging with hyperscalers. I, I talk to organizations across the world, that, across Europe, that, that engage with hyperscalers on a, on a very broad basis, but I think it gives people more choice. And in fact, if anything, it's only a benefit to our to us, our economy, and, and to technology as a whole, if people have more choice. And so that's really what this is going to hopefully introduce. It's also interesting that VMware has made, uh, has a significant part of the software market for, for cloud, um, especially in the public sector mm -hmm. and especially in, in sensitive sector like defense. Yeah. And that is particularly interesting if you consider that this whole debate about Europe and strategic autonomy started in the defense sector from the French defense sector, of course, in terms of autonomy from, from uh, the US and NATO. So how, how does your presence there uh, fit within this broader quest for strategic autonomy? So we provide... Um technology solutions to defense organizations around the world, including, you know, many NATO members. You know, I can cite a case study with the, the UK Navy, for example, that run what they call a floating cloud, which is built by BAE systems that they use to operate on their ships. So that that's fine. I think the important point to note here is that 
what they're building with VMware is built on a series of open standards. So we're not locking them into VMware per se. There's always the opportunity to switch away and you, you can take your VMs, for example, and run them on an open source hypervisor. You can take the networking piece we do and that all runs on open source, et cetera, and, and open standards. So it's, it's not necessarily about locking people into a technology, but whilst they're happy to operate with us, then we're happy to help sell them the, the best and most automated solution there is in that space. I see. And and what about uh, the data localization aspect? So if we take uh, data protection, there has been a regime already in place to avoid uh, transfers from countries that do not have adequate uh, safeguards. Um, and now we are seeing the same in the Data Act for what concerns non-personal data. So what sort of... Uh, solutions are even there to ensure, you know, that besides saying, you know, I, I will only work with a European company or with a company that has uh, data centers only in Europe, what sort of uh, solutions are even there to ensure that your data cannot be accessed from outside Europe? I think that's what the market and the industry is actually looking for, to be honest. There's, there's certain attempts at that in legislation at a European level. There's organizations trying to bring in various ideas and concepts around that kind of, that kind of area. But really, at the moment, that's down to, uh, you know, essentially a, um, a contractual negotiation between whoever's purchasing that cloud service or whatever it is and the provider of that cloud service. There's no, there's no real, very clearly designed standards or, or, or otherwise around that at the moment to give people assurance. So I think that's what you find people are looking for with sort of the various acts that are coming out at the moment in exactly that context. But, you know, it's certainly not something that exists today. So it comes down to those individuals talking, you know, those organizations talking to the, the cloud company they're trying to get it from. And in terms of um, foreign jurisdiction access, we have heard time and again um, from different companies, American or Chinese or even European, you know, if we receive this type of uh, request, we will never comply with it. Uh, at the end of the day, if you are in a certain market, you have to respect the rules. So be it an American company or a European company operating in America, if you receive a judicial request, you have to comply with it. So are there even uh, technical solutions that can put uh, the data hosted by a cloud provider outside the reach of that very provider. I'm thinking about uh, bring your own key, for example. How advanced is the market in in providing this sort of uh, solution? Well, there's, there's various technologies. You talk about bring your own key for encryption and other different pieces there. But I think the piece to be concerned about here and, and and understand is it's not necessarily always always the data that you're talking about access to. Quite a lot of the proprietary information is in how that data is organized, who has access to that data and when they accessed it. And so that might not be encrypted or it might be held by the cloud provider, not held by you. So, you know, there might be just as much interest to a law enforcement agency as to how often you access that data, who accessed it and when, which might be held by a cloud provider outside your borders. Even if the data is held outside your borders encrypted or within your borders, there's still that kind of context of that what we call the metadata layer on top of that, which has to be understood and concerned when you're looking at public cloud. And that's where, again, I'm hearing talking to, you know, cloud providers, customers, et cetera, it's an area that they're concerned about is this, this metadata layer because it's as much about the, the, the construct as it is about the, con the contents in a lot of cases with this data. Right. That's very interesting. I don't think we really talk much about metadata and, and data structures. So in your view, is there... Uh, 
has there been significant reflection around that in, in in Europe or also in other jurisdictions? So I've noticed language and wording around metadata in the new Data Act that's you know currently going through revision within in in Europe, and it's good to see that being addressed and, and dealt with and, and certainly examined as part of that process. But that's really the first time I've seen that in the industry be raised as an as an issue because I think people haven't really people always focused on you know the actual data itself and not the, not the the context of the data and the context of the data is very important. So just uh, to conclude, uh, cloud has, of course, been a a disruptive technology and every organization is thinking about how they can integrate cloud technologies in the processes. But is the cloud the only solution for digitalization or will there be other things for businesses or organizations in general to keep in mind? Totally. I think that's, that's a very good point to understand is that no, cloud is not the only answer. I see a lot of people thinking that everything's going to end up in the cloud. That's not the case. We're not going to have everything ending up in the cloud. And more importantly, everything is not going to end up in one cloud. So if you're a particular organization, picking one cloud and deciding you're going to move everything into it is not being successful for 99.9% of the organizations I'm talking to. The future we see is incredibly what we call a multi-cloud environment. And that means most organizations are looking at using two, three, four, or five public clouds. Some might be a hyperscaler, some might be sovereign, um, depending on the workload, depending on what they want to run and where. And at the same time, still having on-premises. So on-premises data centers are still a thing. I've just been to a customer here in, in Belgium that's looking at building a new data center and what they're going to be putting in that as a, as a private cloud. And then the other piece to understand is edge, as we're seeing smaller and smaller devices and, and data starting to move closer and closer to the point of need and the compute moving close to the point of need, which is being driven by a lot of things, not including, you know, not limited to AI and machine learning, for example. So the future is not about, I'm going to put everything in that cloud and everything's going to happen over there. The future is very much about distributed applications. It's about the fact that in Instead of saying, the cloud's the answer, what's the question? It should be, I need to solve this business problem. This is the application I use to solve that problem. Where's the best place to execute that application? And where's the best place to store the data for that application? Some of it might need a fully secure sovereign cloud. Some of it might be happy completely in a hyperscaler. Some of it might need to be on-premises. Some of it might need to be at the edge in, you know, even right down to the, the back of a police car, for example, you know. So, there's a whole spectrum as people go forward. So yeah, you're right. It's, it's not right to think that the cloud's the answer for everything. It's just something else to add to the choices we now have in how we build and scale technology for the future. Since you mentioned AI, this is actually a very interesting aspect because a lot of people, of course, are saying that it's only the hyperscalers uh, that have the computing power to train very powerful models. i like just to understand how this need for computing power will see increasing for uh, for running more and more powerful models will play out with this multi-cloud environment. So you've got to understand there's, there's several aspects to AI and machine learning, and it's not just about running large language models in huge hyperscale scale environments. It's also about executing AI inference models and decision-making models on small devices. So for example, you know, your iPhone uses AI in Siri to decode your voice. That's running locally. That's not using, but the model it was trained on was trained on huge computers. Tesla, for example, trains its self-driving on a huge cloud 
but then downloads that to be executed locally at the edge in your car. So the AI ML story is not just about big clouds. It's about data being collected in multiple places, data being centralized, huge models maybe being trained, and then those models being moved back out to the edge for execution. Some of it might even just stay all local as well. So, you know, the large language model market that we're looking at, the chat GPT world that we're all excited about, isn't going to be one by one company with the best LLM. There are going to be thousands of LLMs. There's going to be thousands of large language models there's going to be as many as there are companies. And I think every large organization is going to have its own large language model, maybe running in the cloud for them or maybe running in a private model. So it's, it's, not, a, it's not a one cloud wins the game end game at all. Joe Bagley is Chief Technology Officer and Vice President for EMEA at VMware. Thank you, Joe. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That's all we got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Tech Brief newsletter to stay on top of tech news and digital policy developments in the EU and beyond. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Amazon Music. I'm your Luca Bertuzzi and thank you for listening.